welcome to the More to the Story podcast. Look, I am so glad you guys have come along. We have a lot of important topics that we're covering on a regular basis. But one of the things that's been significant for us is the way that the Global Methodist Church has emerged and what it has emerged from and also what the future of this movement is. So we're going to cover some of that today with somebody who's become a spokesperson online and in his own community. So I'm interested in you hearing from him. But before we do that, you need to know that this podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And we do that in the great consensual tradition of the church, emphasizing the importance of the authority and inerrancy of Scripture, along with the reality and promise that we get to experience sanctifying grace in this life. So we'd love for you to find out more about our GMC course of study, our bachelor's, master, variety of master's degrees, a doctor of ministry degree, and, and also several lay initiatives. You can find out more about that at wbs.edu. Also, my friend Keith Waters runs a firm called WPO Development, and they have helped more than 250 churches, nonprofits, and, or schools have successful capital campaigns. Now, this is a really interesting thing. And I say this because I'm somebody who's worked with him. And as I'm thinking about like what's going on in the Global Methodist Church, and as churches are kind of in this restructuring phase, a lot of times you have to be able to develop a clear plan as to where you're going. And one of the things that Keith always says, if you don't have a plan, any path will get you there. And that's one thing we want to make sure, like as we're in this new movement, that we're investing in partners who can help us achieve goals, particularly as it relates to buildings and raising money. So I'd encourage you to check out WPO Development if your organization is in that phase. Finally, there are several things coming from my website that I want to make sure you know about more of the story ministries. First, if you sign up for my email list, you'll get a free tool called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. And this is a lecture that I do for our preaching class here at Wesley Biblical Seminary, but it's something I've adapted so that people can have inductive tools to use with the aim of connecting with an audience in a creative way. So that's a 45-minute teaching and an eight-page kind of how-to document that you can use to uh, move through your own exegetical approach to Scripture. Then secondly, I have two courses that are available for small groups that are available on my website. These are being used by Sunday school groups and small groups around the country, actually around the world. I have a whole group that's interacting with me from Australia, Merv, who I'm answering several questions to. I say hello to you now. But that, that new course has been really interesting to people, Heaven and Other Destinations, A Biblical Journey Beyond This World. So you can find out that find out more about that at my website. All right. Well, I am glad to welcome into the podcast Jeff Rickman, Reverend Jeff Rickman, who serves now in a Global Methodist Church in Oklahoma. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here, Andy. Well, Jeff, I've just come upon your work recently because you are, I, I like think we're kind of trying to do similar things and I wanted to connect with you. And you have Plain Spoken, which is a podcast, a YouTube channel, and you have much higher quality uh, uh, productions than what I can offer. But nevertheless, it's great content. And I think we're coming at with similar goals. And so I just thought it'd be helpful for us to have a conversation so that people can be aware of you and your ministry and what you're trying to do at this moment in Methodism. And um, just to kind of learn about ways that we can partner together. And also I, I want, I want to direct people your way, but at the same time, I want to hear a bit of your story. So tell us what, what is plain spoken? 
So uh, I've always had the uh, the personal trait of not having much energy for deception or beating around the bush. I say what I mean. I mean what I say. Um, and I, I, I feel pretty decent about that. Usually it depends on what setting I'm in. I, I think that's what's required in the cur- current cultural moment in uh, America and in with respect to the United Methodist Church. Uh, I was I was consistently frustrated for many years that it's just hard to get good information, clear information. Um, it was very clear that laity in particular didn't know where to look for yeah, yeah. just a, a plain message about what's going on. A lot of the clergy were reluctant to speak plainly. So I decided, uh, it was about a year ago, I started this up uh, just trying to speak very plainly and, and clearly about uh, not, I, obviously there's going to be a slant from whoever's talking, but I try and make sure that everything I say is based on real documentation that I'll put on screen. I'll always have citations and just help people navigate the theology of issues, uh, the timelines, the personalities, how, how to navigate and get through to the other side so that you're not depressed and, and demoralized with all the gray. There is a black and white of, of any given situation. And I'd like to think that I'm okay at, at personally navigating that and then perhaps helping people in churches navigate that as well, especially in the season of uh, disaffiliation. So early early Wesleyanism was noted for an aesthetic of plainness. Yes. And so I thought it was, I, I personally want to reclaim that notion of plainness being a good thing and plain, being plain spoken also as being a good thing. I'm tired of all the corporate CEO speak and the denominational leadership. I'd, I'd rather just have people who say what they mean and, and get rid of the flowery, uh, uh, mealy-mouthed uh, crap that usually comes yeah. out. So I think that that's what I think that is probably why you've been successful. I mean, I, I like to think of your success. I think when people have consistently, you know, a couple thousand views on videos and you're hitting important topics, I think people are interested in that and they want to come alongside that. Well, before we get kind of get into kind of your perspective and the type of things you're sharing and what your vision for not just the global method church, but I, like I, I, I think of this kind of more. I love what I'm trying to do in the broad Methodist stream, like the pan, sometimes you use pan Wesleyan is the term that's used. But like, I think that Methodism is bigger than United Methodism or global Methodism or free Methodism or whatever type of descriptive word you want to put in front of it. For sure. I, I think a Methodism has just broad um, uh, appeal to the teachings of John Wesley and his and the things, the movements that came after him. So like, I think of it as, as broader. I think you can reach out to that too, but you're probably a little bit more specific as well with the UMC GMC situation. So tell us a little about like how you arrived at this place, maybe even like where you're from, where you went to seminary, how you got to Oklahoma, that type of thing. Yeah. Uh, both of my parents were United Methodist clergymen. Um, okay. I was born. Well, they were in- both clergymen. Well, now that's interesting. Well, my, my mother was a clergy woman, uh, okay. but yes, I had a father and a mother that were both ordained uh, elders okay. in the Northwest okay. Texas uh, annual conference. And then we moved to Oklahoma. We, we itinerated, but, um, you know, with them trying to stay close together, it was limited appointment options. Okay. But okay. Uh, I had the stereotypical experience of going to uh, summer youth camp every summer and being uh, part of district youth events and being part of the 1990s. Uh, lukewarm Sunday school culture and did not have a living and active faith really um, at, at this retrospective point, even though I was in worship every Sunday and we were reading, 
reading out of the revised common lectionary, this, the scriptures were not real to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to undergrad at Hendricks College in Conway, Arkansas, which is, of course, a, a very progressive, uh, formerly liberal arts college, um, and thought myself quite a leftist uh, liberal mm-hmm. and eventually abandoned faith in God because uh, I read some Nietzsche and I was pretty convinced that um, belief in God is for weak people who just can't stand the meaninglessness of life and I was going to do it. And what do you know, I got really depressed and atheistic and um, Mm -hmm. I majored in religion because it's super interesting. I majored in world religions, did comparative stuff. And I still remember a lot of that and it's it's been very beneficial to me uh, having stepped outside of the Christian faith um, at the conclusion uh, when I was ready to graduate, they asked me to speak at baccalaureate because I was one of the few religion majors uh, in the graduating class. And I got up and I spoke and had an experience with the Holy Spirit w- that was really weird that I didn't have a framework for. And it was validated by a number of people present that I had spoken in a voice that wasn't mine. And so I During decided- the speech? During the speech? Yeah. So did uh, this you, you had a speech prepared that you're going to go up and share. And then when you got up, um, the or you, you didn't have one no, prepared, maybe. No, I yeah, didn't. I, I, tell I, I, me about that more. That's wild. Uh, there was, um, I, I don't remember exactly what I said. I mean, it's one of these things where like um, th- so much was happening all at once. I remember what I was responding to while I was speaking. There was a gal who got up in front of me and and uh, said, it's all going to go great for us and we're all going to do well. And I got up there and said, no, probably not. <laughs> a lot of us probably aren't going to do well. Uh, but I talked about, um, you know, uh, it's hard to say how much of that was the Holy Spirit and how much of that was me. And then, of course, I have that same uh, retrospective challenge every Sunday as I, I preach. It's hard to yeah, know where I, I end and the Holy Spirit begins. And so I'm regularly trying to have that discernment. And so I don't want to I don't want to hype that up as like the Holy Spirit possessed me and everything was the Holy Spirit. Right, but it right, was just right. um, I, I spoke with the tenor and the content was just it, it was not all from me. And okay, so. Yeah. Um, so I don't lean to, you know, I, I, I don't have anything against people who have a, a powerful origin story that, but that was just what reopened the door gotcha. and then uh, convinced me to apply for seminary. I went to Boston University School of Theology after a year of nonprofit work in, in Arkansas and uh, did three years there earning an MDiv. I, I thought I was liberal. I cared a lot for uh, working with the poor. I had done that within, uh, in Little Rock. Uh, with some nonprofits. And then um, I went to Boston. They said they had all these cooperatives that I could join to work with the local poor. And they had nothing. They had mm. nothing. And so I had to create my own partnerships, my own. And I didn't do very well, to be honest with you. I was still busy chasing women and, and um, I was lonely and I was still depressed. But in that in that context where they're inculcating me with all this liberal, uh, sorry excuse for critical thought, uh, I actually had to read my Bible on my own for the first time, read through, and um, I, I was extended saving faith by the Lord at that point. Wow. was not entirely sanctified or anything close to that. However, it, it did become clear to me that uh, liberalism, the spirit of liberalism is is uh, a lie and that there was something much deeper and richer that I had written off that actually needed to be reconsidered. And so the rest of my life has been up till now rediscovering that uh, gave up on finding a woman. Uh, I decided I would go into ministry if just to mobilize believers to actually live as believers because there aren't actually many real believers. 
Um, and then um, said, okay, well, creepy, you know, pastors who date are creepy. So I'm just not yeah. going to date. I'll be celibate. It's not working out for me well anyway. The dating scene in Boston was miserable. And uh, it was when I gave up on finding a woman that I actually met my wife, okay. who was a sacred music major, learning to play organ. She said she would never marry a pastor. Uh, we right. met, instantly hit it off. She's a Southern girl from Tennessee. Uh, I, I went to do ministry in Idaho for, um, it became five years at a three-point charge in rural Southern Idaho. But um, we dated long distance for a few months until we knew that we wanted to get married. So we got married uh, a year and a half after meeting. And then she joined me in Idaho and we've been doing ministry together ever since. Um, she is an amazing woman. She is uh, at least half of the ministry that we do here. Um, so uh, I'm all about family ministry, healthy marriage. We have uh, four children, seven years old and under, and we just have Beautiful. a happy little life with a two-point charge here in rural northeastern Oklahoma, where we preach the word of God and people for some reason are not offended. And it's it's going really well. We're not, we don't have huge churches busting at the seams, but we have uh, increasingly authentic Christian communities that are doing amazing things in God's name and, and where the Holy Spirit is regularly um, seen and witnessed and felt. So I'm about the blessed. I love it. I love I'm it. the most How'd blessed you get to person Idaho? I know. Idaho. Oh, um, so this is interesting. It's like I was expecting to hear, okay, maybe we went to Tennessee where my wife's from for a little while. But no, you ended up all the way in Idaho and then down to Oklahoma. So t tell me about that. So my, my parents had gotten divorced uh, a year before my graduation, and they were both ordained elders here in the Oklahoma Annual Conference. And I knew I didn't want to be anywhere near the fallout of that. I didn't want, I didn't want to be dealing with my parents. I didn't want to be dealing with uh, uh, people who knew my parents. I, I just wanted to start a whole new life in somewhere else. And so I, I did. Uh, it turned out that annual conference was really hostile to conservatism and and trying to do something that's authentically Christian in Mormon country is just too confusing for people because to, in their minds, the only committed people to religion are Mormons and everybody else is lukewarm. And and so anyway, I, I finally gave up and, and came home and I've since reconciled with my parents and the, I see them each, yeah, each week and, and all that. But it was, it was relational brokenness that, that was the Bless reason you. for that decision. Yeah. Well, thanks for thanks for being willing to share that. It's yeah. going back to your time at Boston, and then when you say that you went to Idaho as a conservative, so you reading the Bible, studying theology, even in a liberal environment, how did you kind of find your conservative footing in that time? I mean, half of it. So a big part of my ministry is that yes and no are both important carrot and stick mm. are both important. And so um, it was a simultaneous uh, rejection of a self-evidently um, neurotic and anemic way of being in the world, this, this uh, liberal progressive way of being in the world that just does not stand up to scrutiny. It's meant for destruction um, and just doesn't hold up. And so just seeing that from the inside and talking to the professors that just seemed... Um, it just seemed dumb. It seemed it seemed mm. to lack any kind of rigor or integrity. Uh, and, and that's not to say anything about them personally. I thought they were nice people, but I just did not find the uh, the academic work that they were doing and the way that they presented it. That they were they were so defensive and even being challenged. There's an orthodoxy that they expect you to tow, where uh, it was me getting beat down in class, and then a bunch of uh, immigrants from Korea and Azerbaijan 
that we're yeah, getting sure. beat down. Like, how do you not know you ignorant people that we are smarter, we're better than this now to actually believe in the Bible. But also if you know who Nikki Gumbel is, he started yeah. the uh, Alpha Ministry. His personal testimony is that whenever he read the Bible, it was evidently true. Like that was just mm. the sense that, that came through to him. It's just, it's true. As you read, as you read it, it uh, yes, there is stuff that's poetic. Yes, there is metaphor, but it's more than that fundamentally self-evidently true. And mm. I think that was the Holy Spirit actually that revealed that to me. I don't, uh, there are plenty of people who read the scriptures and it's not self-evidently true, right. but um, it, 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 it was self-evident that liberal progressivism is not anything that should be taken seriously. Uh, with at least in the theological field. And then it's also self-evident, at least to me, it's it's unavoidably evident that the, the Bible is true. Yes, I love that you focus on that. And, and that's in part what we're trying to say at Wesley Biblical Seminary with our emphasis on inerrancy is that scripture is true and that and that doesn't mean we don't enter into discussions of literary conventions and style and to figure out what authors were trying to say. Mm -hmm. Um in, in not treating it in a as if it's not only is that it's true, but also that it's clear. The Reformation emphasized the perspicuity of Scripture, that it is it, it is clear. And like I, th I think that that's part of what you, you came face to face with. Interesting, in my own story, I'll just tell you a little bit. Yeah. Uh, even though I went to an evangelical seminary, I was in a position where I was this. We, I'm a little bit older than you, but I was in a position where as I was going through seminary, they there was still an emphasis at that seminary of like reading things like Brian McLaren and Tony Campolo and Stanley Hauerwas and Will Williman. And that that was the type of stuff that was pushed. And it, I wanted to come out and be somebody who is going to be, of course, as everybody likes to say, well, I'm not conservative or liberal. I want to be in the middle. And it's always so interesting how people are so quick to say that, well, you know, you're over here, Andy, wherever that is. But I've the I'm the one who's um, uh, it, not I'm the one who's at the center. I think people do that too when they talk about the marginalized or the people who are the poor, so to speak. That's yeah. been that was in as somebody who did that work with the Salvation Army for 15 years. I entered into Salvation Army ministry with uh, I'll just say some you know soft Marcus Mar Mar Marxist terminology. So yeah. I saw my work in food banks or angel tree programs as a redistribution of the wealth. Yeah. And it, it all of that came crashing down on me with reality as mm. I really sought to put myself in a position to serve people without resources, people who are homeless. And yeah. I saw that it didn't work. It, like it wasn't working. Like what worked was when actually I stopped feeding people on the street and I led them to be in a position where they would instead develop the skills that and abilities God has given them to not be an object of my charity right, or yeah. my work. Instead, realize the creative capacity God has given them with a little bit of support to get out of homelessness. And it, it really took me a while to kind of shake that. So even right. though I didn't have the same journey, I, I still feel like I, I always affirmed Jesus's resurrection and I had a clear sense of God's spirit being present in my life. There still was kind of like this moment of needing to wake up from the reality that liberalism and even like soft liberal ideas kind of centering kind of like evangelical left ideas weren't going to work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, all these, um, 
ideas that are in vogue. Uh, there's a guy I follow who calls them luxury beliefs, um, mm -hmm. where you, the only reason you can maintain them is because you actually are not, you're disconnected from real life. So real life has a way of uh, removing illusions and lies if, if you authentically engage and, and critically engage. So yeah, there's a lot of ideal ideologies around how uh, poverty alleviation and engaging the homeless is supposed to work, but then you actually do the work and you go, hmm, this, this doesn't work. And so you have a bunch of people with failed ministries with the homeless who then just take policy positions later on, never learn their stinking lesson. So um, it sounds to me like you've you've consulted at least Ruby Payne, if not when helping hurts. Uh, are oh, these for sure? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and also Michael Miller, Michael Matheson Miller. Um, now he's with the Acton Institute, um, and um, somebody like um, Bob Lupton. I mean, these these are people who really helped me. And it was ten years into Salvation Army Ministry right. that I realized yeah. this. Yeah. Um, well, that's where the the proof is in the pudding. So far as the integrity of a lot of these uh, religious movements, you know, I think. We all, you know, the, the GMC is doing it now as well. The UMC could talk about mission all day long till it's blue in the face, but it, it did not have a lot to show for itself so far as uh, actually getting people out of poverty. And then the, the poverty alleviation measures that I was familiar with did work, don't lend themselves to a liberal progressive worldview. Right. And so, um, but we'll, we'll see if the global Methodist church is much better than that. It's, it's, it's really a hard position to get to where you're saying, no, I will have strings attached here. These are conditional offerings, right, and right. if you don't come through, I can't come through for you. It is not a loving thing to continue, you know. So I, this is, I, I I would love to hear more people. I, I know we didn't sign up for talking about this today, but it's yeah, a very yeah. heated conversation. Well, I'll just say it's very hard, and I already see, and I'm, and it's very, I'm very cautious with the way I enter the conversation because it takes a couple of hours Doesn't when it? somebody thinks I'm just going to do a a food pantry, mm. I'm going to do a soup kitchen. Because it seems like it's a it's an easy way to enter into serving people, and there are blessings that come from it because you interact generally with people who aren't like you, don't right. come from the same culture, don't have the same um, opportunities, seemingly. And so, because you have that, it's it can be a meaningful work. Mm -hmm. The harder task is to think just a little bit about what you're doing, and rather <laughs> whether or not it is about you mm -hmm. or about the people you're called to serve. I'm, sure. I'm just push it, putting this out here. I know this isn't no. what we signed on to talk about, but yeah. if you're going to put yourself in a position to really help people get beyond what has led them into poverty, into homelessness, this mm -hmm. is going to involve hard conversations and you dealing with significant issues. And I, mm -hmm. any one of the books that we've just mentioned, like that, those things will help you if you have the courage to do it. But my fear is that there's some aspects of any any church as it gets restarted to say well let's just do something the, the problem is that most of the nonprofits aren't working in this way and you right. still want to do something you still have a missions budget and you still want to give it out um you it, it really takes a hard look <laughs> so i yeah, don't think just being a new denomination is going to solve it yeah, well, go yeah ahead. good intentions pave the road to hell they're far from enough to get anything good done and it's not I idealism that gets things done it's it's realism and uh this is, this is what the, the classical tradition was very familiar with that we need to remind ourselves of. We keep catering to these people that just want to do something and they don't, they want to do something now. And we don't have the discernment to say that's, that's the voice of a, a child, yeah, yeah. you know, grow yes, up. Yes. We need to, whatever we do, we need to do well. And if we're not going to do it well, we should not do it until we can do it well. But there's no point where we get to just say, ah, oh, it's too hard. I'm not going to do it. The, the, the challenge is to become 
the, the, the channels of peace that God calls us to and models through Christ Jesus. And if you're not interested in that, if you just want to do something with good intentions and then go home and turn on the TV, you're not a Christian, you know? And so that's, that's, that's what's needed is churches that push people to go deeper and have those hard conversations and, and uh, get into people's messy, messy lives and insist on creating order. And that being the basis of the, the relationships that we build and maintain in the church that's that's so invasive and countercultural that I, I'm just not familiar with many people talking about that or modeling that in the church. Yeah. So. Well, there is there is hope. I mean, this is a moment and if people are listening to this. And particularly if you're in a church that's forging a new kind of moment, if it's a, just disaffiliated like this is the chance for you to really think about that, like. Yeah. This is a chance for you to think as you're thinking about developing a building, hiring a staff. So, Jeff, I, it's easy for me to kind of like get on that point. I really want to make sure I get people to hear your perspective mm-hmm. on what's happened with the move from the UMC to the GMC. So let's just imagine like you're, you're going to your town and uh, you come into um, a gas station and somebody says, hey, so um, you're a Methodist pastor, right? What's going on there? And you have just a couple of minutes to tell them. What would you say? I just say that the United Methodist Church is going through the same uh, throes that uh, countless other institutions in the West are going through, where the long march through the institutions began in earnest in the 1960s, where uh, progressivism, uh, militant leftism, uh, made a concerted effort to gain the control to the the gears of power and have largely succeeded and um, taken large grassroots uh, bases and directions they don't want to go taking control of their assets to use against them and uh, in the name of being on the right side of history chosen to um, uh, become elite bureaucrats that are going to drag the rest of the world with them in a kind of like neo-Marxist utopian vision that um, just happens to lead in death and destruction every time we try it. So uh, the United Methodist Church is uh, there, there are people of good sense that have realized that the whole thing is crashing and burning. It's a denomination that's been in decline every single year since the year it was founded. It's based on a, a project, an ideology, a theology that has been tried and tested and found wanting. And uh, rather than try and participate in this defunct and moribund and corrupt system to change it, uh, some people have finally concluded that that is a lost cause and the best thing that they can do for their churches and the ministry of Christ Jesus, not to be any more scandalized, is to get away as fast as they can. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a pretty technical answer. That's pretty good. Now, you got on to me when I came on your podcast for uh, maybe putting the cookies a little too high. Somebody, somebody <laughs> says, um, now, br- bring those down here, uh, Jeff. Uh-huh. What, what does that mean for our, our Methodist church in our town? Like, what's happening there? So, I mean, I I just think if you are a United Methodist and you care about the gospel of Jesus Christ in any way that's historically recognizable, where where people in other cultures and times would look at you and say, oh, yeah, they're a Christian like me. If we if we believe that Christ was a person with a personality, that Christianity has an ethos and an ethic and aesthetic, uh, a content that is authentic and exclusive to itself. I know I'm getting more technical here. If Christianity is a real thing and they're not Christian. If you want your church to be a real Christian thing, then you need to look at what uh, narrative is under. (laughs) You got to look at what the UMC is actually practicing and preaching and how much that resembles 
the historic tradition. And you need to understand that people can use certain words, the same words as you, and mean very different things. Mm -hmm. You're being manipulated. You're being co-opted. You're being taken advantage of. And if you don't learn to see it, your dollars, your resources, your manpower is going to be used to advance a, a worldly agenda that is an affront to God. Yeah, and you're partnering with that organization. Like you're saying, this is me. This is who I am. Yes. Now, never once in that statement, or either of the statements that you had there, did you say anything about human sexuality? How does that fit into this? So human sexuality is a spillover of the more fundamental issue. I, I keep, okay, here's the nugget I keep saying, and nobody really usually has a response to it. But in the articles of religion that I think almost all Methodist denominations um, uh, subscribe to, don't ask me which article it is. It's four, five, six, or seven. But it's a confession that that we are born in sin, unable to help ourselves were it not for the supernatural work of, of Christ Jesus. So uh, fundamental to the Methodist doctrinal identity is a belief that we are all born lost in sin, unable to save ourselves. We're not neo, uh, uh, semi-Pelagians believing that we were born able to do good or bad. No, we are bo born bent towards sinning, unable yes. to help ourselves. So that's the root issue right there. And then liberals don't believe that. Liberals mm -hmm. are more right, optimistic right. about the human condition, and that that spills out into believing that we can be born not broken. And, and with respect to sexuality, we can have very deep desires, whether or not we're born with them. We can have very deep, deep desires and inclinations that if I identify with them, I have a God who does not condemn me, but affirms me. So it's a fundamental misunderstanding at a very root level of one's anthropology, the nature of sin, and the reality of damnation. These, these are all fundamental doctrines that, that liberal progressivism does not allow for and revises and inverts against itself. They preach a polar opposite of these things so that, it, that liberal Christianity is a parody or a, a counterfeit of authentic uh, traditional Christianity. Right. It's a, it's a privation of the good, as Augustine would say, like it, it, it in itself is like it's separating itself from the good thing that is intended. Mm. It's um, it's a, all, all the, the right things in the wrong places. And um, so like it's just sad that this has become the presenting issue. Now, it's interesting to me, Jeff, like you had this experience like of, you know, coming to the faith once for all delivered to the saints while you're in seminary and working through that. And being aware of this, you still entered United Methodist Ministry. I imagine a lot of people in our generation did something similar. I mean, you, you knew this was coming. Did you have a hope that there could be renewal within United Methodism? Yeah, I think so. But even, okay, so there's um, there's like a practicality to that question that I've never, necess never ne necessarily subscribed to. Like if— okay, yeah. If in order to invest in something, I have to on the front end believe that it's workable, then I'm not sure that I should invest in anything. Mm. So mm -hmm. for me, it was just a, a much more fundamental moral question of, am I a Christian? Yes, I have to engage the church somewhere. So I'm not aware of any denomination that I think is pure and perfect. I I seem to have been placed in this body that at least at that time I found it possible to be in and still live with myself. I've, I maintain that feeling for the most part, but there were a lot of times over 
the course of my ministry where I was just like, I feel like I got to take a shower. I, I got to, you know, just scrape my skin off because this is sinking into me. So if you saw the interview I did with Lonnie Brooks, he's a centrist in the United Methodist Church. He said straight up, the the denomination has behaved very badly. It's been uh, unscrutably, uh, he did not feel good about the way in which liberals have taken the reins of power. And so I just told him, I just don't understand people like you who can see how wrong it is and still stay and lend uh, legitimacy to the institution. Uh, that's just something that I couldn't do anymore. There, I'm not going to say that I was, I mean, part of the other, it's just like I, I have a wife and kids to provide for. I had a paycheck that I wanted to make, and I had churches right. that I wanted to help navigate through right. here. If I, if I had been a purist, I would have been out a long time ago, but I'm, I'm invested in a picture where we're all working towards the church Catholic together. We're all trying to draw together after the divisions caused by uh, the failures of previous generations. And if we're not driving towards that, I'm not sure what we are doing. And then when you get to a place where you realize that there's another option, I guess when, it, when, when things got to a place where the best way that you could fulfill that type of calling, which you've so well articulated, then you pursued another option. Or, I mean, you, you pursued it yourself, but then obviously you've probably had churches that have gone a similar path. Tell me about how that's worked out for you with your own credentialing and then the churches that you are called to serve. So I, I, I want to make clear, I, I haven't given up on the United Methodist Church even now. Okay. I, I see myself as somewhat of a peripheral prophet from the outside saying, y'all yeah. need to get your act together, exposing the the sin. But even when you look at the, the majority of United Methodists in the world are traditionalist conservatives still. Right. And right. so if my voice can help empower them and disempower those who have grained, grabbed the reins of authority, that's that's a big part of what Plain Spoken is trying to do. You know, mm -hmm. that's... So I, I'm, I'm trying to draw towards unity. I got on the outside so that I could still minister to the inside and happen to be part of a covenant body on the outside that's faithful. So I, I do lead two local churches that are not affiliated with the GMC yet. Both of them, um, one of them has always been conservative. The other one was probably middle of the road, but I've been here eight years. And so the ones that were not on board with that way of being yeah. in the world dropped out. And, uh, I I cleaned up the roles as soon as I got here because I saw this coming, you know. Mm. So um, when when I got here, there were over there were almost 500 people on the rolls, I think, at the Nowata Church. And by the time the vote came, there were about 100. Mm. My superintendent wow. at the time we did this this audit where we removed so many, he was not happy. He got mad at me because you know churches here, at least in Oklahoma, were told don't do those ministry audits. That's going to take away from our representation at General Conference, and I think that's. A reprehensible mm, way of running the yeah. church. So, Let's lie then, so we can do better. Yeah, I've got a I've got a series on my channel called Plains, not Plains, but Bitter Medicine, where mm. um, I I can uh, rebuke conservative churches that intentionally left their membership bloated and then failed their membership vote when it came time to disaffiliate. Whenever you're trying mm. to look good on paper, that is going to interrupt or disrupt your righteousness collectively. So anyway, we took our we went through the process. Um, I serve on the WCA for the Oklahoma Wesleyan Covenant Association was a, a coalition advocacy group to help churches that wanted to get out to get out. The the misinformation about us was that we were just trying to get everybody out. But the reality is people are happy in the United Methodist Church. Stay in the church. We don't yeah. want you in this global Methodist church. You'll ruin everything, you know, stay where you are. Um, but if there right. are uh, local churches that that their their values and theology didn't match up with the UMC. We were advocating for them to go. So I, I knew a lot of information on the inside. 
I didn't strong arm my churches. People asked questions. I gave uh, both sides left and right answer, but then also made clear this is where I'm at. And then whenever it came time to take the vote, um, you might be interested. I, I'm going to be putting, I think tomorrow, uh, the bishop called me into his office about a year ago and reprimanded me, threatened to fire me, told mm. me to bring my credentials in. Uh, my board chair from this church came with me to try okay. and be a part of that meeting. The bishop said, don't come in. Not so the board chair came back and told everybody, we pay their salaries. We paid for this building. They wouldn't let me in the room to support our pastor. And after he said that, everybody voted to leave. And wow. so it was an easy thing to exit. It's been really fun uh, to yeah. be independent for a little bit, but um, they, they've been uh, uh, challenged by a pastor who is of a, a very fundamental belief that there's no such thing as a lone wolf church, that we have to right. be in covenant relationship with the network of churches. So I'm pushing, and um, it looks like we're going to be making a decision as a board as to what direction we want to go, and I'm advocating for the GMC. And have you yourself uh, moved your credentials to the GMC? Yeah, I'm an elder. Gotcha. Great. Yeah, I was a local licensed pastor only ever in the United Methodist Church. I never made it through oh, wow. the Board of Ordination, uh, ordained ministry. They never liked me. Um, anyone Are who you wants serious? to follow. Yeah. Interesting. Anyone you who had a degree follow. from Boston. Oh, yeah. And, and they wouldn't accept. Did you try or did you just realize it wasn't going to be fruitful? I, I tried for uh, 10 years and three annual conferences and uh, was was stiff armed every time because I am plain spoken. And uh, they just there there is a notion you can't have right leaning far right leaning people. The ones that do lean right that make it through the system are the ones that pull their punches. Uh, mm. I've heard of a few exceptions, but not many. Uh, in Oklahoma, there was no way I was going to make it through. So particularly in your conference, yeah, yeah. If anyone's interested in in the play by play on that, I I wrote up like a ten page report on my twelve years going through the ordination process on my sub stack, uh, maybe we can put that in the show notes or yeah, something. Sure. And uh, it's called my, uh, my ordination in the GMC or something. And it just tells about, I have like documents from the board of ordained ministry that I scanned and put on there just to show how ridiculous the whole thing was. So anyway, I was clearly credentialed. I clearly have my Wesleyan knowledge, I, you know, more than the average bear and they still wanted nothing to do with me. And then global Methodist church, it was just like, yeah, you obviously belong in and you, here you go. Ordained. Wow. You know, it was really easy. So. Wow, what a blessing to be able to like have a group that you can totally identify with. I mean, I'm totally maybe maybe there's things you don't identify with. Maybe you should be careful saying that word total. But nevertheless, like you're connected to this movement. The, mm -hmm. Let me describe two scenarios of what's happening for churches. There are some churches that have disaffiliated and then gone to GMC. Maybe they've had 80% of their vote, 75% mm -hmm. of their vote. Then there's other churches that are in a situation where I know three that are just like this where they only got 60% or 65% and they were a couple of votes short of disaffiliating. And now there's a group, sometimes there's a couple of churches I know have like 203 and then one with 300 people who the next Sunday, all of a sudden they have a church plant. Um, yeah. So what do, you, what do you think the opportunities are for those type of churches? Like what do you, what do you think they can be and what's the potential of those, those groups? It's really hard to say because Right now, the, the project that the Global Methodist Church is trying to do broadly is to come out of something that they were all against, but not talk about the particulars of what they were against. Joining together as something that they're for, but also not necessarily talking about the particulars of what they're for. Hmm. 
So the particular, you know, as, as uh, you know, there's a saying in our language, the devil is in the details. And the thing is the global Methodist church I, leadership is to my mind, avoiding the details or at least not addressing the details. And I, I think that that has a high capacity for future fracturing as uh, right now it's a nascent, uh, a very new, new body where there's not necessarily doctrinal uniformity or clarity. It's not, uh, it's clear that we're saying no to something. What are we saying yes to exactly? What does it take to be a global Methodist? I've done a, uh, an interview with a guy named Matt Sickle where he talks about 12 yeah. doctrinal distinctives that are really not negotiable. I'm not sure the vast majority of global Methodists would agree with those. So um, it, the question is, can we coalesce around something other than a collective rebuke of the United Methodist Church? And if so, what does that look like? In the local context, whenever there are these new church plants that are just uh, a rebuke of the United Methodist Church and of this weird, you know, for anyone listening who's not United Methodist, the disaffiliation process mandates a vote of all the membership where 66.6% plus one has to vote to leave. And if not, you can still have a majority of anywhere between 50 and, and 66% that if you don't clear that, that, that super majority, you are stuck in the United Methodist Church. And in that case, it's miserable. Um, but if, but if you have everybody leave and break off and start their own, I mean, the, the thing to be optimistic about is, you know, finally you can have the shackles thrown off and, and serve Christ with abandon. And, but the threat of that is there's a catharsis to quitting, destroying, starting over again, that um, it, when a person goes through a divorce, if they get remarried, every time they get remarried, the likelihood of divorce increases, yeah, which sure. is to say that when you normalize um, disaffiliation, that the, the commitment to the new covenant body is automatically going to be lower. Hmm. And so really, if at all possible, I want us to be intentionally training a new generation of disciples that doesn't let things fall apart the way it did in the United Methodist Church and is much more vigilant and um, uh, has a higher standard of righteousness so that they don't go through this cycle that honestly for 2000 years of Christian history this seems to be a cycle that's just repeated over and over again and I just I cannot I can't I, I can't be at peace with oh it's probably going to happen again to the GMC no I'd rather just be vigilant now yes yes um and early Methodism had all the tools in place for maintaining that standard and it was only after we got rid of in particular I was gonna note the class meeting the mandatory class meeting mandatory. once it was no longer mandatory the jig was up I was going to bring up the class meeting earlier in the context of poverty alleviation. I actually don't. I, I think the class meeting is the number one best tool that we have for mm. all sorts of transformation around Christ, including poverty alleviation. Mm. But until we reclaim that as an essential and non-optional part of the Wesleyan heritage, I'm pessimistic about any Wesleyan denomination being authentically Wesleyan. So tell me what uh, you think some of these kind of key markers are. You mentioned the article or the the podcast you did with a person named Sickle. But at the same time, go back, um, maybe just in your own perspective. Like you've said some key words, righteousness. You mm -hmm. talk about class meetings. We've talked about scripture in a certain way. So what what do you think needs to be a part of this new emerging Methodism? So John Wesley, if you read him, his primary concern was reconnecting with the, he called it primitive church. But the yes. notion is that what was done in the beginning from the, the day of Pentecost, the, the Holy Spirit falling upon the apostles, that we can tap into that exact same reality here and now. It's, it's not irretrievable. Rather, it's actually essential 
for salvation and the authenticity of the bride of Christ, the church. And so a lot of that depends on polity, how in our, our, our notion of how the church operates. And so, yes, it's autocratic. We have um, leaders at the top that uh, should be holy uh, people, sanctified uh, and, and with a track record by biblical standards. But also there's supposed to be a grassroots uh, priesthood of all believers of a certain quality and integrity. And so there has to be uh, quality control. And so that's what John Wesley formed in the Methodist revival was non-optional uh, societies. They were exclusive bodies that operated alongside the church that um, you had to participate in a class meeting, which was governed by the general rules, which were broadly uh, 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 do no harm, do good, attend upon the ordinances of God. And then they spilled out the particulars of what that meant. And then they were very clear, if you were not interested in practicing these, you could not be a Methodist. Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, John Wesley would, uh, he would issue tickets to those who could be a part of the society meeting and that were regularly renewed and you had to get renewed. Other times he would just come through town and he would assess the faith of the whole body and sometimes kick out a quarter, a third of all the members. And that is the reason why it meant something to be a Methodist. It meant right. that your personal faith was publicly attested to and seen and, and validated and verified by people who are walking with you throughout the week. Um, and, and that 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 meant something. You were a transformed person who was actually interested in um, the Wesleyan phrase was uh, to be a Methodist. You had to have a desire to a sincere desire to flee from the wrath to be, to come and be saved from your sins. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's, they formed this crucible of a community, an intentional vulnerable uh, community that everybody signed up for, but could get kicked out of. And so I I'm regularly advocating for the global Methodist church to not just have the carrot of the wonderful fellowship that comes, but with the stick of disfellowshipping individuals and churches that will not um, uh, cooperate in right, this sure. program of righteousness that we have. Problem is, and here's my huge biggest concern with the Global Methodist Church, it has highly uh, married itself to a spirit of church growth and multiplication. And so you can't have church growth and multiplication uh, to the minds of many, if you are actively kicking people out and kicking churches out, there's not necessarily a belief in this idea of uh, addition by subtraction, which I, I think is core and key to Methodism. I'm not sure it's core and key to any Methodist body right now, but I would say if Methodism is something, it, it, it's a way of being a Christian, that's something that I think is non-optional. I think we have to kick people out. I think we have to have church discipline. So th this is the the move that hasn't happened in some ways. It's been so much more evident because of the issue of human sexuality or general fidelity to Christian orthodoxy that it's just obvious to most people that what's happening in some places and regions of the United Methodist Church is not consistent with that tradition. Mm -hmm. But you're talking about going to another level. like to, And I, I think that's helpful. The the Salvation Army, which I is where I came from, I came from that group before joining officially the Global Methodist Church, and I still am very connected to the Salvation Army, and I think it's a beautiful expression of Methodism as a whole. Well, part of what it was was an extreme, absolute military system, right? That that would do exactly what you're saying. Now, yeah. there that became a weakness within 
the I, I believe within the Salvation Army. But at the same time, there's something about it to say there is something that we're a part of, and we are going to hold ourselves accountable to that. Mm-hmm. So I'm hopeful that that I mean, do you is it reasonable to think? And or, or how could this happen, Jeff? Like, how could you come to a place of there really being accountability on a denominational level? I mean, I can see how you can apply that uh-huh. as a, a pastor in a congregation, but do you see that being something that can happen at a macro level? Yeah, I mean, it, we've seen it at a macro level before. So to imagine that it's not possible now for some reason seems uh, obviously problematic. The The specific mechanics of how you get there from here I might not be the the best mind to talk about it right now. I see my myself as kind of like a a provocateur to get people to even ask the question and think sure, about sure. it. And and I just want people to think about realistic. Why do we imagine that we alone are going to be the only movement that succeeds in maintaining its integrity over a prolonged period of time with only carrot and no stick? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it, most people would say we we have sticks. You know, we're going to have church trials. We're going to bring people. When you look at church trials and how they're done, when you look at how confidentially confidentiality is used by church bureaucracies to to maintain unrighteousness, I am not at all confident about that. But then also when you look at the cost of a church trial, um, I interviewed my bishop, uh, Scott Jones, in the GMC, yeah. and I told him, hey, man, if you ever decide I'm just no good, just fire me. I don't, I'm not going to demand a trial. I'm not <laughs> going to do any of this, this just uh, – resolution stuff just fire me you're the boss people do not need their 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 tithe money to go to giving me a fair trial and then if if we're going to have bad administration then we deserve to crash and burn but if we're going to have righteous leadership then that means they're going to do their due diligence and and keep the good clergy in and kick the bad clergy out i i I think this we take ourselves way too seriously when we imagine we're going to design these systems outside of the bible uh, to practice church discipline that are so expensive and don't necessarily dispense justice any better. So um, I, I think a frugal, streamlined, plain denominational organization that is just real clear on you're either in or you're out and uh, you're either helpful or you're not. And then if if some people get crushed along the way, I can live with that. I just don't, on this side of heaven, I don't think there's any perfect system that perfectly cares for everybody. And if that's the burden that the church has to meet, then let's just go ahead and close the doors. We're set up for failure. Yeah, that is, that's interesting. How did Scott Jones respond to you? He uh, didn't, he, yeah. he, he very politely said, he, I think he turned it into a conversation about how faithfully as Bishop in the United Methodist Church, he did use the church trial process to maintain the standards of the conference that he was in. But I, when you talk to progressives, they intentionally use that strategy as a way to demoralize the whole organization. Um, so I don't care how well you do it. I mean, I love Bishop Jones. I respect Bishop Jones. He's my bishop. I acknowledge his authority. But I just disagree with him on this point. I think I think if, if we design systems like that. I also talked with Beth Caulfield of New Jersey. She got uh, crushed by her bishop over there. And she was of the mind that if we design the right systems in the GMC, we can keep that from happening again. I think the only thing that's going to save us is absolute transparency, stuff not happening behind closed doors, yeah. uh, bishops and conference staff being being uh, reporting to to the priest of all believers, and then um, just a clear intolerance of of unrepentant sin. And if if we're not going to do that, not only would I say we can't last, but we shouldn't last. 
So you're hopeful that there'll be an opportunity to have this sort of accountability, to have class means to really, in a sense, enforce discipleship, like to create a system where that's going to happen, where righteousness can flourish. So like that's a key emphasis that you've had, that it's a righteous church that's mm -hmm. following it, not necessarily just trying to get more and more people to come. Now, you also emphasize and like have a, a approach towards scripture as well. That's one of the challenges is how United Methodism has emerged is like there is this um, a diversity, pluralism at the center of it. And sometimes there's this move to want to create there this idea that, well, there's a liberal interpretation and then there's a super conservative side and we don't want to be either one of those. So we're not going to use um, language that you know might be confused, like inerrancy or something like that. What's your and what do you think the role of scripture should be? That even a hermeneutical approach for this new emerging Methodist moment. Well, for better or for worse, the store starting place for me is um, a kind of a class based notion. Wesleyanism, Methodism started off as a lower class phenomenon for the most part. And so that's why plain speech was so important. You don't want to be talking over the heads of the people you're preaching to. Um, but it also meant they had very plain buildings. They were told to, to dress very plainly. One of the part of, part of the general rules was not wearing jewelry and ornamentation and finery. Um, th this was built into the very beginning. And I, I think that should also be seen in biblical interpretation. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of biblical interpretation that's found untasteful or unacceptable to um, upper middle class sensibilities. And that's namely anything that's too literalistic or fundamental. Yeah, um, I don't see a good reason to take issue with literal interpretation of the Bible other than a class-based uh, concern for respectability. Interesting. Uh, so I, I just, the, the motivations of engaging that whole line of work are deeply suspect to me. Yeah, I think the most charitable way I can understand it is they say, well, we don't want to be falsely reading the Bible. And there's parts of the Bible that are clearly not meant to be interpreted literally. I just think that's a red herring, honestly. Yeah, uh, maybe yeah. that's the fault. I, 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 when you talk to scriptural literalists, as long as they know they're in friendly company, they can very eagerly talk about, okay, how is this literally true? Okay, that doesn't seem to fit. Okay, metaphorically, how is this true poetically? They can do that as long as they know that they're engaged in the project of the, the fundamental presupposition is this is true. And right. then the conversation is how, in, in what ways is this true? How, how many ways is this true? Because scripture rightly understood is polyvalent, which means it's true on multiple levels. Right. So let's figure yes, out yes. all the ways in which this is true and comports with the rest of the scriptural witness. But the moment you're going, you know, turning scriptures against one another and saying, well, this doesn't fit. And, you know, clearly we have to pick and choose which ones are right and which ones are, just count me out, man. And then yeah. as soon as you're going, well, you know, this, this view say like six day creationism is, is repugnant to anyone who knows what science is. So we need to go ahead and renounce that so we can be uh, not immediately. Yeah, respectable, accepted by people of a certain class. That's why I'm just going, man, you and I have different concerns. I just don't think biblical interpretation is at all to be concerned with the way that cultural elites receive it.
Yeah, I'm with you. I think that that's a big part of what's happening here is is almost an academic respectability. And I can feel that too now functioning in this role. And as I've been in more liberal academic environments, I know it's easy to kind of say, well, I want to get along and I want them to know I want to be in conversation with them. So let's not use language that will distance us from them. Let's come together. But again, what am, what am I going? Like, what's my aim? And a lot of times it's towards this respectability side. And one of the things that I think I... I know that most GMC, all GMC pastors, I would imagine, would affirm this. Like they don't want to just be a denomination that exists somewhere uh, in a class structure between, or even in a formal liturgical structure. Like, okay, so we're not Baptist and we're not Catholic. We're kind of somewhere in the middle. And it's right. just like kind of a stylistic consideration. But that mm -hmm. same type of conversation can happen at a class level where you want to be kind of like, well, we're not liberal exactly but but we're smarter than those fundamentalists over there yeah, you don't want to yeah. be a fundamentalist do you so like uh -huh. we're trying to kind of resist that and i think man you know what i found as i've as i've started and i've affiliated with this institution where we say we're enthusiastic and errantist what uh -huh. i found is that the people who are in the pews then they see that somebody that's an institution the preachers from there are ones I can trust. Um, and I think that that's where I want to serve that group. And I'm willing to enter into like the further conversations about it. But I think you're on to something really important. There's who are we about? And like, who are we trying to serve? And is this a matter of us kind of make, getting respectability at a certain class or sociological level? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's something that John Wesley himself preached about later in life was, you know, as, as these working class people really applied themselves to the faith and got very diligent and disciplined, that meant that they made a lot more money, which meant that class right. concerns became very prevalent. And he rebuked that the, the notion of a Methodist is not that you have to be poor, but that you definitely have to maintain some blue collar sensibilities, some notions of the plain meaning of scripture and plain uh, lifestyle, not a concern for opulence or high mindedness. And uh, that's, that's another thing I don't hear many people talking about. I'm not sure many people can even understand that conversation at this point, but there, there really has to be, I mean, I, I think everybody should do rural ministry at one point or another, because they're going to help you keep it real. And if you're too high minded, yeah. it's just not going to work out. You know, you're speaking past people. So, and if, if that means that you're not welcome in the ivory tower, I'm okay with that. But um, yeah, I, I would right. like to that's think right. that the queen of the sciences uh, can do just fine with or without, without the, the blessing of modern academia. You obviously are, are uh, invested in that picture as well. So thank you, brother. Yeah, and, and I think that that's part of what's made WBS distinct. That's probably why for 50 years we haven't been approved by the University Senate of the United Methodist Church. Yeah, because gee, I think it, I, it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's a positive in part, thing. We'd say we're a plain seminary. Yeah. According to your, I like how you use this word plain. Like yeah. this is a, a plain folk. And, and, and if you ever question the kind of academic credentials of that, we'll just come and sit in a class with us. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> like we're yeah, glad to have you participate. This caricature that they have of, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just call myself a biblical literalist. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty close to that. I don't know if I'm a six day creationist, but even so, I, once someone says that they are, they are not immediately excluded from right. 
serious conversation for me. So, you know, this, this, this biblical literalist um, way of being in the world, there's a caricature of us as just, well, the Bible says it, and I believe it, and that ends it. And that's not really how anybody is. That when you love God's word, you want to know how it's true. And, and it becomes much more interesting to you when it's not just some signpost of a, a, a point in time when God came close. It's, it's literally God's revelation for us. Yeah. And then we get to spend our entire lives figuring out how that's true and how that applies. It's the most beautiful way of being in relationship with God's holy word. And the fact that it's so maligned uh, by people is so easily and rarely defended. Like it's, it's, a, it's a scorned thing to defend biblical liberalism, literalism uh, is just really a shame. So I, I don't know. I, some people listen to me and probably think I'm a moron. But other people who listen to me and, and hear that I'm capable of critical thought and I read the Bible this way, I, I hope that I can do just a small part to reclaim. I mean, John Wesley, yeah, he was loosey-goosey in some of his biblical hermeneutic, but the guy was very clear. It is true, and he wanted yeah. nothing to do with textual criticism or the, the, the higher-minded methods of, of the Germans. Uh, that has no place in Methodism. Well, and of course, he was very clear too that if you know one part of it isn't, isn't true, then all of it isn't true. So, mm -hmm. like he used, he stuck his neck out there with that. Okay, I'm going to hit one other issue, and this is too prop too long for us to probably hit now. But there probably there's a debate of sorts of even people who are in this tradition um, who think that John Wesley was wrong in 1784 to ordain Thomas Coke. Uh, that the idea of moving to a place of even creating a Methodist Episcopal Church in the United States and um, even the conflict that comes between Francis Asbury and John Wesley um, shows that really to be a, a if you really want to be a Methodist, you really need to be an Anglican. You really need to the word we 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 were off on that or Methodism was off after John Wesley dies and it officially breaks off, even though some people would see the root or the of that as coming from 1784 and onward and like somebody like charles wesley of course was very opposed to what his brother did right. and I, I think that that's part of this class struggle too i don't not positive i'm not a sociologist to be able to put that together but i think there's something to that um and i think that this will be a poll and this is in part why the acna is getting people who are who have been fed up with what's happened in Methodism have moved toward the Anglican Church in North America. So, any thoughts on that and and where this all comes from? Uh, at least to my mind, what's at the core of that is uh, theology around the apostolic succession and um, how that figures into ordination, which ties into the legitimacy of the church. And um, you know, there are people that are smarter than me on this, but um, the theology around ordination in the United Methodist Church to my mind was never very fleshed out or very serious. It just kind of became a conglomeration of doing what made sense and felt good uh, to the people in power. I'm not sure that the Anglican church has a better approach. I think the only other approach to um, establishing the legitimacy of church, the church and its leadership is some kind of like Neoplatonic uh, mirroring of the, the world of, of forms and um, yeah. that when you inhabit the identity of Christ in a certain form, uh, the reality of Christ is is uh, imputed upon you or something like that. I'm, I'm really not clear. Uh, I'll be real earnest in this. I'm really not clear on that. I, I, I don't like either extreme very much, but I think a synthesis is also a cop-out. Uh, I would like to be a part of the authentic church. Um, 
you know, some days I get so crazy as to think that maybe it was a mistake to abandon uh, the Roman Catholic Church at all, and we should have just stayed and slogged it out for another thousand years. I really don't know. Um, the apostolic succession makes sense. The world of forms makes sense, but then you get into an argument about the nature of the true church, and that's kind of yeah, where yeah. we are. So I'm afraid I'm I'm not a very good resource on that. It's just a no, big no. I, I just I, I think there's something to that, and this is something I want to explore at some other, t- other point. I have in my hands. I think this is a 1830 book of discipline. And uh, for the Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, Doctrines and Discipline, no, 1844, and it outlines why this needed, why there was this move in 1784, and how Francis Asbury came along. And I just think there's something to this plain spoken expression of Methodism that Methodism kind of happened in this vibrant way. Uh-huh. On the American frontier, combined with I'll even say some of the American spirit and even some of the American structure that enabled it to thrive, and I, 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 I kind of line myself up with that tradition, the Francis Asbury kind of tradition. Have you read Wigger's American Saint? Oh yeah, this I mean okay. this is so that's like the best book on all this. I mean if 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 anyone in your audience wants to know about this amazing piece of American and Methodist history. Uh, I think John Wigger is the author. Yeah, that's but his name. Yeah. I'm, yes, I'm 100% with you, brother. Go on. So, so what I'm saying is, like, if you're a look at this, and there's a, you know, Wigger has some shorter articles too. You could just Google his name, W I G G E R. And like, what I, Jeff, this is what I was, I guess, this is a good way to close out. Is yeah. like what I hear in you is I hear that spirit. And I hear like something that's connected to wanting to not be about evangelism and fleeing the wrath to come. But at the same time, having a robust system of discipline and righteousness and accountability. So just know, like what I'm saying is like I affirm what you're doing. I don't yeah. know all, all the details. I imagine if we drilled down long enough, you and I would disagree on some things, and that's okay. But yeah. I, I appreciate the fact that you're also wanting to take this to a new medium by the way you're using online resources to connect with people. What 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 are some of those things, uh, resources, where, where people can find you? I want to make sure they know about that because I think you're offering some great content that I want people to be aware of. Yeah, uh, on YouTube, uh, my handle is PlainspokenPod, all one word. Uh, so that that's the place where we're doing best, but we're also on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Facebook. Um, I've got a locals community if anybody wants to support this ministry. I got a guy who can come on full time whenever I've got enough revenue coming in. Um, so uh, those are those are the main places that we are. I'm on Twitter, but that's mostly where I just collect stories, you know. So yeah, sure. Yeah, but I mean that's the the consistent thing. I, I'm glad you've you've caught on to it, and I, I think I would be a bad pastor if um, I didn't exhort people. We need to be looking seriously at damnation and hell. That's just something we don't think or talk about. But I mean, I'm all about that carrot and stick. And yes, salvation is a wonderful thing to aim at. But unless you feel the flames of hell licking at your feet, you're just not going to move that fast or that far. And the Methodism was was motivated in a very sincere belief in a wrath that's coming. And we we need to reclaim that as part of our ethos and daily awareness. Um, and so that's that's the motivation. <laughs> it's both carrot and stick. So. Uh, whether or not you, somebody man. listens to me at all, uh, I, I just hope they l- listen to what we've talked about today and reclaim some of those things. You know, people are playing church. That's the vast majority of American churches. They are not real churches. They are playing church. But if we want to be authentic disciples, then we would do well to reclaim all of what the early Methodist heritage was 
that was yeah, a crucible yeah. for righteousness and we got to get it back. Sorry, I keep going. No, I'm I, yeah, I'm sorry. I just want to jump in. That's why I put out this resource, Heaven and Other Destinations, A Biblical right. Journey Beyond This World, because part of it is like a very clear teaching on eternal damnation. And so I want, I, that's the first doctrine to go. And yeah. it's just throughout history, that's what's happened is that yeah. when people start to question the doctrine of hell, um, this is where it gets to be problematic. And so, yeah. yeah. So I, I encourage people to go, go and take, take a listen to or you know, get that course. And I, and I think it will help people to deal with even some of the philosophical issues that come up with that. So, and, and also like, I, I'm a, I'm so appreciative, Jeff, of the, of the work you're doing. And I hope people can follow you and figure out how they can uh, kind of grasp this moment and what the spirit might be saying to the churches. Right on. Yeah. All right. Thanks for coming on, Jeff.